This week on Cool Story with Brie and Brady, it's a special Q&A episode. We have gathered your questions and lumped them into reading and books questions, career questions, and love and life questions. I'm Brie Lee. And I'm Brady Jabour. Brie, the first question comes from Emily. We actually had so many questions from different people called Emily. <laughs> and so that name is going to come up again and again, but I promise they are different people. Emily asked, what popular book did you hate? I think you're going to have a juicier answer to this than I am, but I have an increasingly complicated feeling towards some of Helen Garner's works. Oh, really? Yeah. In particular, the one I'm thinking of right now is Joe Chinque's Consolation. There is a way in which, and I still, like, obviously I have huge admiration for Garner. I think she's incredibly talented. I, I love a lot of her work. But Joe Chinque's Consolation has some pretty extreme, I would say, like gendered stereotyping that – I feel like maybe I have grown out of. There's a way in which Anu Singh, the young woman in the trial, is like Ghana characterizes her and the things that Ghana chooses to describe about her that is like sort of on one end of the stereotypical woman spectrum. And then you have Joe Chinque's mother, Mrs. Chinque, who is the opposite end of the spectrum, who is just this paragon of of motherhood and like maternal love and instinct and Ghana herself is like interested in sort of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and um sort of subconscious narratives and I just it doesn't sit well it doesn't there's something about it that increasingly doesn't sit right with me that is not a boring answer at all Mm. how many times have you read that book I read it once Probably three times now. Once a very long time ago when I was too, I don't know, about too young, but like not mature enough to appreciate the significance of what it deals with. And then a second time when I went through and read all of Ghana's nonfiction and also all of the just Australian nonfiction about crime when I was drafting Eggshell Skull. I read everything around it. And then the most recent time that I'm referring to is when I was doing my master's. So what's that, like three or four years ago and it was that recent time reading it that I it was like having growing pains or something it's I don't know I I find it hard still to articulate I ask because I've read it once years and years ago early 20s I remember being very blown away by it very moved by a lot of it and by of course Helen's writing she's Mm. an extraordinary writer whatever she's doing and But that's a long time. That's more than 10 years ago that I read that book. So you saying that makes me I, wonder if I would think differently rereading it. Yeah. I would be fascinated to hear your thoughts on it now. And in my mind, it's one of my favourites of hers. <gasps> Probably because it was my introduction to her. Yeah. and so You never and, forget your first Ghana. Yeah. <laughs> So that's a really interesting answer. Mine is. But it's not, yeah, the question from Emily was like what book did like basically, what book did everyone else love that you hated? Yeah, which you didn't hate it, but no. still yeah. it's, that's a good answer. Mine is A Little Life. <gasps> oh, see, I refused, oh, not refused to read it, but so you hated it. Oh, you haven't it? read it. I don't, 
I choose not to read books that are explicitly significantly about child abuse. But you, um, I just assume that you would have read it because you interviewed her on stage. I've read To Paradise like deeply and I am very, very well read in everything in the, like the wealth of other work that Yanagihara does and I've read widely around A Little Life. It's just such a fucking huge book that I know is so much about abuse. I'm not doing that to myself. Oh, I found it so gratuitous. So gratuitous. And I also I found some of it so lame. And like oh. the, the dumb fant like and a dumb fantasy. <gasps> and I did not feel the characters were real at all. I rolled my eyes through a lot of it. But I tell you what, I read it quick. I was it's a big book and I obviously was still engrossed because I read it quickly and I finished it, but I really deeply disliked it while I was reading it to the point that it actually caused an argument between me and Rick Morden at the time. Because we both read it when it came out and Rick loves that book, as a lot of people do, and was very moved by the book. And I had such a deep, it wasn't even just I was bored by it. I had a deep dislike of it. And he took it so personally and I was probably such a bitch about it as well, you know, in my blunt way, that it caused an argument between us and he got really angry at me for how much I didn't like it. And that's the book that and everyone, I think it it was maybe not a book that was universally loved, but it was definitely a very popular book and I read it when it first came out and could not stand it. See, I just hear that and I'm like, that is all I could hope for, to be really honest, if I wrote in particular with fiction. If I write a fiction and some people are like fucking diehard fans for this and other people like detest it. You, you want like, people to think that it's lame? Uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, but I want I didn't I would, even think it was well written. But there was some, there was something like car crash-ish about it that made me keep reading. I don't know yeah. if you would like my me to read your book in this kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean I would rather people love something and hate something than just be like, eh. ambivalent. Yeah. yeah, ambivalence, that's death. That's yeah. like that stylist who says she would rather be on the best dressed or the worst dressed list. And she says, for someone to say an outfit is fine, that's death to me. That's Carla <laughs> Welsh, and I have watched her entire masterclass. <laughs> we haven't talked about masterclass yet. We have to do that at some point in time. Bridie, a specific question for you from Sarah. I want to know how Bridie gets her reading done with kids and social life and family life. Hot tips, please. Thank you for the question. I think that sometimes reading can be a bit of a status symbol, especially on Instagram, and there can be a degree of uh, it's performativeness about it, and I hope people don't get that from me and my reading because I never want to make someone feel bad that they're not reading as much as me because they don't have the time or made to feel like they're not making the best of their time because they see how much I read. I have read, this is not going to be surprising, I've read voraciously since I was a kid. It's always something I've loved doing. It's not a it's not a chore to me. I, see, I think that some people could get the same out of watching really, really great TV in the evening as what I get out of reading a book or even like playing video games. It is something that I do for enjoyment. It doesn't always enrich me, you know, it's, and it's something that I do a lot for my 
own enjoyment, but also the answer to this is like, you know, how do I read so much? I also get questions about like, how does she have so much of a social life with her kids and how does she have the energy for all of this? The real answer to all of those questions is that I have genuine 50-50 parenting mm. with my partner. Yeah, so and hot I tip. Think, yeah, well, I think a lot of women don't have that and it's not their fault. Yeah. It can be for any number of reasons from, you know, an imbalance in the household that's hard to correct to a husband having an incredibly time-consuming job that's awkward hours. Actually, my husband's jobs are awkward hours and that's why I'm home a lot more than people realise. Uh, so we are, we're 50-50 parenting. So, you know, if Matt's home while he's uh, putting them to bed, I'll lie on my bed and read a read a book. I read a lot before bed. After the kids have gone to bed, a way for me to unwind is I lie down and read. I think I'm probably also a very fast reader and that's why. I think I, you I, are. Yeah, I think I must be a pretty fast reader. I'm not a very fast reader. So I think that's how I read a lot. I, I enjoy it. It's not a chore. There's plenty of other things in my life that go by the wayside. I also really have to emphasise how much I do not supervise my children at times. (laughs) (laughs) My house is really messy. Sometimes to, you know, it disgusts me and I don't, I don't do the household chores. I let my kids beat each other up in the next room. And the only time I'll ever intervene is when I think a head's about to go through a window. (laughs) And, you know, I'll lie on my bed and read books when I should be doing a multitude of other things. So that's really how I think Mm. I fit it in. Like it's a question of priorities. Yes. And it's priorities, but it's also just what I really, I I enjoy it. Like I enjoy it so much. It's a way for me to unwind and I'm really good at doing what I want as well, I guess. And when I want to read, I read. A question for both of us from, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name properly, it's Matif. What strategies do you use to stay informed about current issues without succumbing to rage and despair? I think that's such a good question. Yeah. What are you, what's your answer? My answer is that I regularly succumb to rage and despair. Oh yeah, true. (laughs) I'm quite a porous person. Like it took me a long time to realize there's a like, I'm strong in some ways, but I've chosen to not try to not be empathetic if that makes sense like when someone's crying in front of me I cry if something's if something makes me angry I f- feel that anger for me well I mean I guess I part answered this question before when I said that I like choose not to read something like a little life like I know for myself the themes <laughs> and certain subject matter which will make me despair in a like hopeless way rather than rage in a potentially constructive way. And I just I don't I have said no a long time ago to being sent manuscripts and proofreading copies about like abuse memoirs. I say no all the time to doing in conversations with authors about certain themes and I make no apologies for it. I've like did that work and moved on. But in terms of staying informed, I just think the question sort of combines rage and despair, but for me those are two very separate things. And I will like, rage is fine. I can rage. (laughs) What about you? It's so much in my daily life. You know, I can't, there's a lot of times I would like to take a break from the news and I can't because of my job. Mm. And so I do find it difficult at times. So I think two of the things I do, one of them is reading. Like reading is such escapism for me. A lot of what I read is novels. I've mentioned previously that I've been reading a lot of novels this year when no one gets an email or text message, essentially set before the year 2000. A lot of it sent in the 40s and 30s. 
I find it comforting to read novels set in times of other crises and in particular, you know, ordinary life happening amongst the backdrop of the world wars. And I find it comforting to think of people surviving crises and bad times previously and I feel that we are going to do it again. And also reading is just an escape for me in a way that I forget the world. And the other way is... Oh God, this is such a, I think, cliched answer. Spending time with the people I love. Like I'm really good at having lunches, having dinners with my kids included. And <laughs> I'm glad your kids are included in the <laughs> people I love. <laughs> <laughs> They're not always included in the people I love to have lunch with, that's for sure. But, you know, I stepping away for hours and hours at a time on the weekend, like losing half a day to hanging out with other people and just talking shit, having fun, eating good food, unwinding and just emptying my brain out, yeah. to be honest. So t- proper breaks. Yes. I think. I, w- I would also just add here, I don't want to, I never want to like talk about my newsletter too much on the podcast, but something I've just realized in this moment is that I made a very deliberate choice with my weekly newsletter to always have three items of good news and three items of bad news. And if that structure every single week, and I've been doing it for years now, forces me to A, find, and then B, like reflect on and further articulate the ways in which every single week we are seeing and making progress. And I think that like bad news gets clicked on. And if you are the kind of person who wants the world to be a better place, you can like focus a lot on what's going wrong because it gives an emotional response and you can get like addicted to that feeling of sadness or rage. But actually every single week for the last three years, there have been at least three things that have made me genuinely happy and or hopeful happening. And I think that's, I'm glad that I have that. Taking the wins. Yeah. Oh, celebrating wins. You have to take the wins. Taking the fucking wins. 100%. Now we're moving on to work and career. Mabel asked, and this is a great question because I don't even know the answer to this question and there are so many times I have meant to in conversation ask you this and then we've just got distracted by whatever. Brie, you've said there are only five people in the world whose opinion on your writing you care about. Who are the famous five? And was it an approach you consciously decided on or was it something you realized was your approach? Okay. So I use five as shorthand. What I really, I think, you know, I've just finished, thank fuck, the final like copy edits for my new book. So I can say for sure that there were four people this time. My agent, my publisher, my editor, and my husband. Has he read it yet? Not yet. He reads it when it's his choice he 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 reads it when it's done he yep. wants the the final finished copy so those are the four people there's a chance that with a different work that is like inspired by something or or is in response to someone that their opinion will matter for example with my previous work who gets to be smart a lot of that was featured my friend brilliant friend damien and so his opinion on it really mattered to me. But for this new book, it's fiction. Those are the four people. And 
like I am actually also genuinely friends with my agent and publisher. I'm not close with the editor, but I am genuinely friends with my agent and publisher. And I'm obviously friends with my husband. Um, (laughs) But like, it's not just that it's, they're not only professional contacts. They're also people who I like care about and admire, but deciding that those are the only people whose opinions I value or like sort of will listen to in any meaningful fundamental way was a response that I had to like learn the hard way after Eggshell Skull had come out and gotten a lot of love and a lot of hate. And it just took me going through the ringer of sort of 2018 and all through 2019 of being spoken about so much and being written about so much and having any fucking human being on the planet give any fucking opinion they wanted, not only on my work but on me and who I was. And sometimes it was genuine and sometimes it was not genuine and sometimes it was like honest and truthful and sometimes it was people just deliberately lying or misconstruing or misrepresenting, willfully misrepresenting my positions for ad hominem attacks and going through that ringer forced me to make a call about whether or not I would listen to any either praise or criticism from external sources because you can't you know I would I had like a terrible review or someone say something horrific about me and someone would say oh well don't listen to the bad stuff you know don't listen to the bad reviews and it's like well to my mind you can't ignore the bad reviews if you want to then also feel better about the good reviews. And so I just decided that none of it mattered. None of it is relevant to what, not that it's not relevant to me. I will not let it affect my guiding principles and my Northern star for who I am and the work I want to make. And there are only four or five people who can actually change how I think and feel about myself and my work and I trust them fully and I trust no other bitch. <laughs> Have you ever had negative feedback from any of them? Ooh. Oh, from them. <laughs> I thought you meant from in general. Yeah, definitely, definitely. This novel that I've written has gone through sort of, I would say me redrafting it at least 10 times but redrafting it after significant feedback from my agent and publisher three times and big sort of character changes, inclusions or exclusions from sort of plot points. And it's hard to take that constructive criticism, but at the end of the day, they are almost always right. And what I can trust in them is that we all have the same goal, which is that this is good work. Whereas I cannot trust a reviewer and I cannot trust someone. A random person on the internet. A random person on the internet. Yeah. And and I've said this before and I will say it again. Write whatever you want to write about my book. You can eviscerate my book, especially on Instagram, Goodreads, wherever you want. Just don't fucking tag me in it. (laughs) You do you. (laughs) Don't remind me. The next one, I'm curious to hear what you say to the next one. I also have an answer for it. It's from Olivia. She asked, is having an agent necessary to sell a manuscript? 
The short answer to this in a very nuts and bolts way is that in the US and UK, you really actually do need an agent because it's just not the done thing that an author would contract directly with a publisher. In Australia, you can contract directly with publishers. The question actually is whether you sort of should or shouldn't and what the real value of an agent is. What do you, what if, what's been your experience? I think it depends on the person and the book mm. and the opportunity. In Australia, publishers definitely are a bit more open to their slush piles than in other countries. And also in Australia, I've noticed uh, working in the media for as long as I have, that publishers are happier to directly approach writers they see after seeing an opinion piece or reporting done on a particular issue or, you know, Rick Morden got his first book deal for 100 Years of Dirt, his first book, off the back of a column he wrote for The Australian and he was directly approached for that. I know at HarperCollins, the publisher there, Catherine Milne, who's my publisher at the moment and who's brilliant, has direct relationships with a few quite a few authors, but usually they have a little bit of a profile. They've written something, you know, they've done reporting or they've written opinion pieces and that's how they've formed the relationship. So I think that an agent can be incredibly valuable, especially for a first-time author. Mm. And I think a really good way to get one, I'm just going to do a bit of like practical advice, which I found incredibly useful. And when I was researching how to get a book published with my first book in my 20s was look at books published, say you're just working in Australia, but this will probably work overseas as well. Look at books published in Australia that are similar to what you want to publish. Go to the acknowledgements. They'll usually thank your agent. Find that agent and email them directly with your pitch. And that's how I got my first agent. And that agent, I don't think I would have got my first book published without her. But I think if I'd waited a few years, I could have gone direct with a publisher. So it's really up to the person. But that's I think that is such solid advice for finding an agent. And I tell people to try that all the time. How did you get your agent? Well, that is like what you just said is also the advice I give people. And the other th advice I give people in terms of whether or not they should get an agent is whether or not the book that they have is the only book they want to write or if they're going to try and make this a career. Because if you're a sort of one and done because you have a specific thing that you experienced or a specific story that you just want to tell in one book, then you don't, the, the utility of an agent is not as significant potentially. Whereas an agent in my experience, because I have a fantastic agent, Grace Heifetz at Left Bank Literary, Grace has helped me like steer the sort of early stage of my career and knew what my dream, like kind of author trajectory would be for my life. Um, and so it's good having that person there with me helping. But in terms of how I got an agent, it was when Grace was at a different agency several, like many, many years ago now. And I won the inaugural Cap Musket Fellowship, which will be, it's every year. And it's for a person, either a woman or someone from an underrepresented gender. And it, when I first won it, it was three grand. Now I think it's five grand. And I won the inaugural fellowship and a tiny press release went out and off the back of that, I had a couple of publishers email me saying, whenever this manuscript you say you're working on is done, like, let us know, we'll, we'll take a look at it. And I took that little bit of interest, took it to Grace, who then signed as my agent, and she turned it into a lot of interest. You're so clever, Brie, and so strategic. I love that you even know your trajectory, what you want your trajectory to be. I don't even know what I want to be doing next month. 
Everything in my career up to now, I feel, has just been an accident. No, all I know is that I want to write until I die. That this, I have, like, it's just a question of how much I can make it. Like, you know what it's like, I currently do so many different jobs and what I really want to do is write my books. And, like, at the moment, if I get book writing time, that is, like, the golden treat reward time. And so I'm just trying to figure out how touch wood, I live until a ripe old age, how over the next several decades I can have to do like less and less of the other stuff and more and more of the book writing. That's that's the dream. And to figure out how to like potentially support a family with writing, which is a fucking joke. <laughs> incredibly difficult in Australia. Yeah. My dream is to always have a good time. Oh, righty. <laughs> <laughs> Love that for you. So third question for the work and career section, Sarah has asked, how do you both have so much energy? Do you experience burnout? What do you do then? Your answer to this I think is more interesting than mine. What's my answer to this? Well, didn't you have genuine burnout? Oh, yeah, that was cooked. <laughs> yeah, I was so burnt out. Fuck. I remember I got to this stage where I couldn't, how did I even articulate it at the time? I couldn't see a way through where I would like be happy again, where I'd be like normal and happy again. And a big thing for me without going into too much detail is that one of my favorite things about my husband is just like hanging out and like having fun. And we still make each other laugh a lot. And there was a kind of joy that used to be a regular thing, especially on weekends that it had just been a long time since I had experienced joy. And I just, with hindsight in particular, I just had such bad burnout. And one of the answers for me was realizing that I actually have to take weekends and that it's not actually possible to just work all the time and for that, for either you to be okay or for the work you do to be actually good. It's not just because... I'm awake for X number of hours during the day does not mean I actually can be productive for that many hours of the day. It took me a very long time to learn that. And especially if any of the work you do is like creative or emotional, you actually need to invest in yourself so that when it comes time to turn the tap on, something comes out. But also, I mean, last ep we talked about the toxicity of self-care. I also don't really want to be sitting here as a very comfortably middle-class woman giving other people advice about things they can do as individuals to try and overcome systemic issues of inequality. Yeah, but I think the questioner is just talking about putting too much on your plate yeah. and and getting burnt out. I, when I was pregnant with my second child, I was working full-time. I'd forgotten about this, actually. I was working full-time. It was February 2020, so just before the pandemic. So that hadn't happened yet. And I had a two and a half year old and I just got another book deal that I was going to deliver within six months. And I'm usually like a pretty even keeled person, pretty like happy, I would say overall, mm. you know, like, and I remember just walking around and just crying and crying and crying. And I didn't know why I was crying. And I rang Maddie and I was like, I don't know what's wrong. I think I had a RDO off work and I, was just walking around. So I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't stop crying. And Matt was obviously really nice. And I, and I thought, is this depression? Do I have depression? Cause I've never had that before. Very, very luckily. I went to my doctor and I said, I think I've got prenatal depression. 
I can't get out of bed. I can't stop crying. I feel so exhausted, blah, blah, blah. And I talked to her about it. And the doctor asked me the depression questionnaire and about my history. And she's like, "Mm, you're not depressed. You've got exhaustion. (laughs) And I was like, that's not real. That's what celebrities say when they're going to rehab. Exhaustion is an incredibly embarrassing thing to have. And she's like, no, you've got exhaustion and you're going to make yourself incredibly sick if you keep going this way. And she wrote me What do you mean you've got exhaustion? What does that mean? I think it's essentially burnout, but I just, I had, I was exhausted. I had gone too hard working full time and being pregnant and looking after a two and a half year old and and doing the book. Mm. I was, yeah, working every single day as well as looking after a kid and also just the physicality of being pregnant. Mm. I think many people can't understand until it happens to them. And she said, "You all you need to get better is rest. And I thought, I go sleep every night. This is ridiculous. And she wrote me off work for two weeks, which was uh, really embarrassing for me at the time. I said, I can't take two weeks of sick leave for being tired. That's ridiculous. And she's like, well, you have to for the health of you and your baby <gasps> and probably your family. And then there was some, there were some concerns about my heart. I had to go for heart scans and there was some concerns about that. And I went off work for two weeks, didn't do anything, and then was fine again. <laughs> yeah, and so I was, yeah, and I couldn't believe that. So I think that's essentially burnout, right? And but and I but I think I have kept it in the back of my mind a lot since then because that was about four years ago. Of you do have a limit, yeah, and you can reach that limit, and so it is important to rest with so much energy. I think maybe I'm naturally energetic person and I do get a lot of energy from other people and from doing things but I'm also try to not pack my schedule every day of the week like we try to have at home days which are so good for us and the family I know that advice sounds a bit lame but yeah that's how I have so much energy and do everything is proper breaks it's taking me proper rest yeah it's taken me a long time to realize that you can't add something without subtracting something from me like can't add a new project or a new hobby or just something that you want to do more without actually removing something else from your life. That has been a big one for me. And the other thing I struggle with still is that I don't have an employer um, Well, I'm self-employed. And so I don't know when I'm allowed to take holidays. <laughs> yeah, you have to put it in your account. This is the thing yeah. about how tech companies get heaps of praise for giving employees unlimited leave. But research has found the result of that is employees take less leave because they don't have a leave balance and so they never take it, which sounds pretty similar to your situation. Like you could technically choose whenever you want to take your leave, but you are just not putting it into your calendar. Yeah. Yeah. So I still struggle with that. So I think I would, that's something I would like learn from other people about and appreciate is if, if they have like be, be strict about your leave. Yeah, I know. Like, I after all that discussion and our response is, um, you just have to rest. rest. <laughs> you can't well, do it all. To the energy thing, though. Finally, briefly, I have I've learned about myself in a way that I'm not proud of. <laughs> I think is very immature. Is that if I'm doing something I care about, I have almost like boundless, limitless energy for it, and I will work my ass off and be really dedicated and conscientious and detail-oriented and watertight about it. And if I have to do something that I don't personally care about, I am a nightmare to work with. (laughs) (laughs) And I find it – and it's not – I don't think that's like a kind of admirable, like, renegade trait. I have just – I know a lot of people – 
personally, and I know there are a lot of people in the world who go out every fucking day and do jobs that they don't care about, that they're not like motivated by because they're feeding their families. And I have a huge amount of admiration for the reality of the daily grind of just turning up to work and doing that work. But I think one of the reasons I have been successful is because I realized that if I'm doing work I care about, I do it five times as well, which is a luxury. A question from a different Emily for you, Bridie. We've moved on to the love and family section, love, life, family, (laughs) live, laugh, love, life, family. Would love to hear Bridie's thoughts on parenting boys, personally and cultural phenomenon of gendered parenting more broadly. This is a really good question because I think sometimes it cannot be very culturally cool to have boys. I think that a lot of women out there would prefer to have daughters or when they're pregnant, they want to have girls. And I've certainly felt around me at times, people feel sorry for me that I ended up with two boys. Really? Yeah. Which is really shocked me at times. And I remember there was one girl in particular who, when I was pregnant with my second son, said, do you know what you're having? And I said, no. And she just blatantly said, if you have another boy, then will you try again? <laughs> and I I found that really sad because I thought there is nothing disappointing to me about having boys and there's nothing disappointing about having sons. And also I've made it ultra cool. I've made the mum of sons club. Pamela Anderson is in it. Rihanna's in it now. <laughs> but I, guess- I find it a total joy to parent boys. How do I parent them? I think actually that the way that I parent them. I don't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I do about 30%. Well, you know, I truly don't worry about the kind of boys I'm going to raise because they, the male role models they have, Mm. they have so many positive male role models in my male friends who I'm really close to, you know, such as Rick who loves them so much. And he's in, basically their uncle. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I call him an uncle. He jokes that he's fake uncle, but he is like an uncle. Their other uncle, my brother, Seamus, loves them so much and is so fun and is such like a unique individual who is definitely not held back by gender norms. Their father is a lovely, thoughtful, generous man. Both of their grandfathers are great men. So I don't worry that much about the type of men they're going to grow into because of all this incredible male role models they have around them. So basically I don't have to do anything. But no, I'm joking. But the way the way that I parent, something that I learn off my parents and I really respect in retrospect is, you know, they had four kids and we are so different to each other. And they really, what my parents were really good at was taking us as we were. Mm. We never were compared to each other. We never had expectations on us that we should be different. They were, my parents, especially my dad, was so interested in us and what we thought and what we were interested in and encouraged our interests. I think that really is the secret to how they raise such confident, clever, at times kooky people. And a, and a good example of this is that, you know, at school I was surprised a great student. <laughs> I all I didn't top the class, but I almost topped the class. I got a scholarship to uni. All my grades were excellent. I got, you know, great report cards. 
did really well in exams. And my parents praised me for that and they were proud of me, but it was not like a central thing in our house that Bridie is the smart one or Bridie's super smart. It was just, you know, they were proud of that aspect of my life, good on Bridie. My brother failed the HSE and he's 23 months younger than me. And it was just so not an issue in my house. Mm. It did. No one ever said to him, why don't you try harder at school like Bridie? Why aren't you more like your sister? Bridie got better grades. You know, they took my brother as he came and they, they he certainly was not dumb and no one thought that he was dumb. But they didn't write him or compare him and they just totally accepted him as the individual that he is. And then same went for my next two sisters and that is my guiding principle in parenting is to – and it, it sounds simple, but it is hard not to project your interests or your expectations on your kids sometimes. Like I really want them to love the movie Mary Poppins <laughs> and they just refuse to. <laughs> Why do you love Mary Poppins? Oh, my God. I yeah. love Mary Poppins. I watched that movie again and again and again when I was a kid. One of my aunts used to look after us a lot after school. We'd always watch it at her house. We watched it at home. We were all obsessed with it. It has quite a socialist message on rewatching <laughs> as an adult. Um, Mary Poppins, the legendary Marxist. Yeah. <laughs> and so... And my kids don't. Like, so it's little things like that and you're like, oh, I really want you to love this and and you don't. So even in little things like that, you just have to accept their likes and dislikes and them as individuals and just, you know, listen, be interested in them, be engaged with what they're engaged in. I draw the line at Bluey. I can't stand that show and I refuse to be engaged in it. Um, that should have been the, your answer to the first question. <laughs> um, I think they're books now. What's the book you love? Oh, my God, the books are so bad. We, that you hate that everyone loves. But, yeah, I think that just I feel comfortable and confident in my parenting, I guess, because of the way I was parented in that way. And, you know, my parents aren't perfect parents and I'm going to be. So. <laughs> <laughs> Righty, you already are. <laughs> But also I know I don't have expectations of myself to be perfect and it's just my job there to guide them and love them and help them be who they're going to become without my projecting any of my own expectations or fears onto them. Hmm. That's such a long answer. That's beautiful though. I like I liked listening to that. Okay, thank you. Hmm. The uh, next is the next question for Also from a different M. Yeah, told you there were a lot of Emily's and M's. Oh, yeah, this question. How the fuck did you find good men to marry? Brackets. From a soon-to-be-divorced 29-year-old mum. The first thing I would say to this is divorced before 30, deeply chic. (laughs) (laughs) That is so cool. You listening, ladies? (laughs) If you're coming up to the big 3-0 milestone, is it time to rethink the man you I have one of my closest friends got divorced before 30 and it's one of the coolest things she's ever done. And my second response to this is like divorce as a 29-year-old mum, you know, you must really be going through it, Em, and I have so much admiration for you and this is probably one of the toughest things that you were ever going to do in your life and that you've made this decision really makes me think that it is not the wrong one. Mm. So good on you and you should be proud of yourself even on the toughest days. Yes. Now, Bree, the first part of that question, how do you find good men to marry? Well, I met mine at university 
We are the absolute worst people to take relationship yeah. advice from. Yeah. We didn't date that much. No. Nah. We met we both met our husbands when we were in our early twenties yeah. and I would put eighty percent of it down to sheer dumb luck. Fucking luck. Because I don't think you could be that developed in your early twenties to be like, this is what I'm gonna accept and this is what I'm not gonna accept. And really have even figured yourself out completely. I wonder if you have the same feeling that I have, that I grew as a person with uh, I, my partner. I say that we grew up together. Well, I can't say that about Mike because he's a lot older than me. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> he had a whole life before, many lives before me. What I would say that I have witnessed in my friends, and this is like quite sort of specific to heterosexual relationships, is that oh, this is like this is speaking in very generalized terms. A lot of women are with dudes who don't deserve them. And I think I don't I don't it just seems really obvious to me that especially in the sort of second half of the 20s into the first half of the 30s, like late 20s, early 30s, there is just this way in which all of the like hetero women I'm seeing around me are just like fucking killing it they have their shit together they're like sometimes they'll be like anxious and stressed and a bit burnt out because they've been firing on all cylinders for so long and the straight guys on average are just not functioning at that level and I think when I read this question that someone has chosen to get a divorce at 29, like I felt the same thing as you did where I was like that is, especially with a kid, like that is such a big call to make and I am just so full of admiration for anyone who's willing to make that call and pull that trigger Um, because I think a lot of dudes, a lot of straight dudes in straight relationships right now are fucking on cruise control. Mm, I don't agree, but I'm man-peeled because I know so many great men. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm on the side of men. No, I'm on the side of everyone. I think that the late 20s and early 30s, from the vantage point of my mid-30s, like my true mid-30s, the late 20s and early 30s was a very tumultuous time in relationships, breakdowns and yeah. building. It's a really make or break time. It is. And a lot of my mates who were single in their early 30s and who went through really bad breakups had a really tough time then and now a few years after many of them have found great relationships because they know what they deserve, they know what they're looking for, they know what they're going to put up with and I think that M is realising that at the moment and when you know what you want, I do believe like eventually eventually you're either going to find it or you're going to stay single and be incredibly happy but you're not going to end up in a crappy relationship again. Oh, you mean like if you've managed to escape from one crappy relationship? Yeah, or it's when you learn a lot of lessons, like when you leave those long-term and have those bad breakups. Mm. And if you do that and it feels really rough at the time and it feels like it also can feel like everyone's paired up, there's no one out there, there's no good guys out there. But there are, I have faith that you will find him, but also I have faith that even if you don't, you'll be really happy. And because I've seen also my single mates really flourish and love their life so much and both of those options are so much better than being in your unhappy, the unhappy relationship from your late 20s, early yes. 30s. 1,000%, yes. Yep. Ooh, and this is a juicy one. This is the last question. I don't actually know the name of the person who sent this in because we got all these questions in a variety of ways. 
But someone asked Bree why she doesn't talk about her marriage or her partner or her family. So no one's asking me why I hold back. Yeah. <laughs> I found it so hilarious. At some point in time late last year, I was I had to find a like clipping that I'd written for the Saturday paper. And so I should just like bookmark it, but I always just type into Google Breely Saturday paper and it takes me to the page where all of my bylines are. But this time I typed in Breely, hit the space bar, I was just about to keep typing Saturday paper and it auto-filled and the first drop-down option was Breely wedding. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought that was so hilarious and I wish there was a word that didn't sound as mean as pathetic. (laughs) Aren't you interested in other people's weddings? I love looking at the photos of other people's weddings. Yeah, but not to the point where I would ever search it out. If I'm scrolling through and I see it, I'm like, oh, that's interesting maybe, potentially, if it is an interesting wedding. But, like, I cannot fathom ever going and hunting for somebody else's, like, wedding information. Oh, my God, your that is so different. <laughs> what do you, why am, do you care? Because I'm nosy. I'm so nosy. I want to know everything about everyone at all times. This is why I ask such, like, ultra inappropriate and personal questions at times, which I'm sure you've seen me do a lot. <laughs> I want to know everything about everyone. Yeah, okay. Well, here's the actual answer for the question for me is that, like, I wrote a book in which I was extremely revealing and vulnerable about extremely personal information. And what I learned through not only writing that book but then also having that book publicised and, as I've mentioned, having that book sort of picked apart for better or worse is that there is a way in which a book uniquely as a mode of expression allows me to choose every word with tweezers. And I, it's like such an act and project of controlled soul authorship that I am comfortable sometimes talking about my family in that very controlled way. And even then I have seen the way it will be misrepresented or misunderstood. And so I just learnt, I think, the hard way to try and not run my mouth about things that are really special and private to me. And complicated and packaged up in this is, like this is a theme, honestly, that I've had to explore in my fiction um, in this book of mine that's coming out next year is like what happens when you decide to sell your story and what happens when your story gets sold? And my, I sold my story with Eggshell Skull and my story got sold. And there is a way in which in this 21st century creator economy and gig economy and age of social media and social media being monetized that we are all to, to varying degrees in different ways selling ourselves and our stories. And in particular, I would just say that my relationship with my partner is so special to me. It makes me feel good to never, ever, ever feel like there is any chance that I am selling it. I'll tell everyone whatever they want to know. <laughs> Scroll My fun. boys can make a buck. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I love No, I understand yeah. that. I totally understand that. We just have different approaches. Like, people, some people are just more private. And also, you, I have never revealed something so vulnerable. I don't have something so vulnerable to reveal as what you wrote about 
in eggshell skull. Mm. So we're just operating on completely different yeah. planes. It's like we're not even we're not even like running the same race. Like yeah. we're just a completely different sort of it's starting. Di- completely points. different set of consequences. Yeah. Completely different set of like relationship with the public. Like I barely have one. Yeah. 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 I just it's like I like having something that's all mine and special and precious and just for me. And I've always respected private people. Cannot do it myself. <laughs> But I respect it. You're like physiologically incapable of not. I can't keep my mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it makes you a joy to make a podcast with. (laughs) (laughs) True. I was made for this. Thank you, listeners, for all of those questions. We will do another Q and A episode probably towards the end of the year. So there'll be an opportunity for more questions, but the, those were a delight to read and answer. And I've learned things about Brie that I didn't previously know. Yeah. I like, I like asking you questions, but I also like reading out other people's questions for you. You've been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, where normally we talk about our stories, the best stories and the biggest story of the week. This show is produced by Sam Devonport. Please find, rate and review us. We love to read every review. And find us on Instagram at CoolStoryBrieBridie. And if you haven't watched us already, every single episode is also on YouTube.